Welcome to the Kalos Church Podcast. We're so honored that you're joining us today. The word Kalos is a poorly pronounced Greek word that means beautiful. And we believe here at Kalos that the words and the ways of Jesus are very beautiful. That's why each week we're bringing content to make known that beauty. So let's go ahead and jump right in to this last Sunday's sermon. Hey, hey, good morning. Thank you for letting me be here this morning. Good morning. We just love visiting here. And can I just say, it's truly an honor for my wife and I to be here. It's an honor anytime we get to ditch our three kids and be anywhere, but it's truly an honor to, to be here with you all. And can I just, real quick, man, you guys as a church do honor right. I mean, you do it right. We got to our hotel room. There were gift baskets. I mean, it was amazing. I, I'm, I'm calling our staff and like, you guys need to honor me better because they, 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 they know how to do it right. So it's an honor to be here. If you're wondering if I'm related in any way, shape, or form to one of your pastors, I prob- we probably are. We probably got a distant cousin somewhere connecting us, so we're probably related somehow in some way, shape, or form. But truly, it's an honor for me to, to be here with my wife. We've been married for, on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, it'll be 14 years. Yeah, yeah, we, we got married when we were 10. So it's really, we started young, and we got we married for 14 years, so it's, it's great for us to be here. We have three kids, and, and one on the way. We have three kids and, and three boys, and they're half brown, half white, so they're 100% confused all the time. They don't really know, they know what's going on, you know, and so, they, so they're trying to confuse. They have two different sets of grandparents with different sets of rules. They're raised differently, and so the sort of joke with, between my wife and I is, if we, if we want our kids to be emotionally safe when we leave, then we have my parents babysit. If we want them to be physically safe when we leave, we want her parents to babysit. So we're sort of like caught in between, which grandparents should we leave them with? But it's, it's really great for us, for us to be here. And we're from Denver, Colorado. We're originally from Chicago, but we, we live in Denver, Colorado. And so, you know, part of Denver things is our kids are just sort of learning what it means to live in, in Colorado. And so my kids will, will ask me all the time. They'll say, Dad, can we, can we go camping this weekend? Can we, can we really go camping? All of our friends go camping. To which I remind them, like, hey, kids, brown people don't sleep in tents. We just, we don't do it. Whenever I see, whenever I see your pastors hiking, I text them, like, yo, what are you doing? We don't, we don't do this kind of stuff. We stay indoors where there's no bears and there's climate control and there's, and there's Wi-Fi. This is why our people exist on this planet. So... All that to say, it's truly an honor to be here. And can I just say before we go on, I came, I came down around 7.30 this morning, and this team is working hard to set up this room. They all have smiles on their faces, and I remember those days of Portable Church. But can we just thank the, the team of people that show up early to set up? And we were portable for about five years, and then we got a building. And so I'm praying that you guys get a building before we got a building. And so you say, I receive it. If you receive it, you say, I receive it. I want you guys to get a building, not just for the sake of the ease of the setup team, but we really believe in the local church and that you would be an embassy of the kingdom of God in this place, where all these corporations are moving to, to stake a claim in Seattle, and I'm believing for you all to stake a claim for the kingdom of God here in the city. So when people drive by, they walk in, they see what's going on, and they experience the beauty of Jesus in person, the kingdom of God in person. Really, our churches are so similar. I, I love being here. I feel like, in many ways, we are just back in our church, the way that you worship together, the way you go after the heart of God together, it's beautiful to be a part of this. And so my prayer for, for you as a church today and us as a people today is that we would truly encounter the living God and that we wouldn't leave here impressed with anyone 
but really have an imprint of the Holy Spirit. So wherever you're coming from, whatever your story is, know that God loves you, that you belong here, that you are welcome here, and my heart for you is you'd experience Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Let's get right into God's Word. Lord, in the next few moments, may your Word come alive to our hearts. May the meditation of the preacher's mind, of the people's mind, and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. May our words be pleasing and acceptable to you. We love this, and together we love you, and together all of God's people said... Amen, amen. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and we're just going to do two verses this morning. I could preach on this for, for hours and hours and hours, but it's going to stick to my time, and they told me I had about an hour and a half to get through this, so just stick with me, and we'll get right through it. Just two verses for you, but here's how I want to begin. begin. The word Christian really wasn't the word used to describe the early followers of Jesus. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 11, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts, We see in Acts 11, the word Christian is used for the first time, but it really wasn't a word that Christians used to describe themselves. It was the way that people described them, and the word Christian just meant little little Christ, and it was sort of a derogatory term. They were saying, oh, you you little Christ, you little Christians. Now, Christians embraced this word, but they referred to themselves as people of the way, the people of the way of Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the life, and I am the way. I am the way to live your life. I am the way of real dating. You know, dating was in the Bible, but I am the way to do it. I am the way to real godly marriage. I am the way to use your finances. I am the way to raise your children. I am the way to see your career and your work and how it all fits into God's plan. Jesus is saying in a culture today, which is a pluralistic society, a postmodern culture, a culture that believes my truth is the truth, Jesus is saying, no, in fact, I am the way. And so the people of God early on called themselves the people of the way of Jesus. And so for the first five centuries, they would have been known as the people of of the way. And this is who Paul is writing to. He's not writing to to people who don't know Jesus. He's not writing to people who are strangers. He's writing to people and reminding them, you are followers of Jesus, and this is the way to live. Now, when you say the word Christian in, in society today, it could mean anything. So today, if you say, I'm a Christian, depending on where you live, it could mean a plethora of things. It means you vote a particular way, if you say Christian. It means you raise your kids a particular way. It means that you're an imbecile. Where I live in Denver, which is, I imagine like Seattle, a very intellectual city, the word Christian means, oh, you must be an intellectual imbecile. You have no thoughts of your own. You're actually a moron. That's what many people think when they hear the word Christian. Christian now is associated with American culture. So if you travel overseas a lot, which I do, they assume everyone in America is Christian. Or someone, many people assume wrongly, that Christian is the religion of white people, not knowing at all that it started with brown people in the Middle East, right? Like, so Christian just means all sorts of stuff. We have Christian subcultures. We have our own awards. We have our own record labels. We have our own clothing. Now we spell words without the, without the vowels in them. You all know what I'm talking about. Like, we have our own thing. <laughs> We have our own restaurants we go to. We have our own stores we go to. So if you're a Christian, you go to Chick-fil-A on Saturday morning. You end up at Hobby Lobby on Saturday afternoon. And then and if, you're, if you're trying to like, well, I'm kind of Christian, but I, but I want other people to become Christian, you go to Target to try to evangelize people. At tar- and then you try to get them to come to Hobby Lobby with you. We have our own little thing. And in other parts of the world, they would have no understanding of any of this. 
Now ask yourself for a moment, how does a group of people, by, by A.D. 100, there was about 25,000 Christians in the world. By A.D. 300, and this is before Constantine, there were 20 million. How do a group of people who have no social media influencers, who have no military power, who have no Christian senators, who have no Christian governor, the Pentagon is not Christian, the president's not Christian, the empire is not Christian, who have no money, who have no Christian businesses, who have no influence whatsoever, how does 25,000 people turn into a following of 20 million? Because they lived the way of Jesus. They simply believe that we are meant to live the way that Jesus wanted us to live in a culture that wanted nothing to do with them. Now, if that could happen then, could it not happen today? Amen. Could we not once again become the people of the way of Jesus, who live in the humility of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, filled with the spirit of Jesus in our world today? Not only is this possible, it's actually available. And so my hope for us today is that we would learn once again what it means to be followers of the way of Jesus. And I think Romans 12 really captures what this means in verse 1 and 2. So Paul writes this. He says this, in verse two, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers. He also means sisters. Brothers just means brothers and sisters. Okay, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, therefore. Now, whenever you see a therefore, you got to stop and see what it's. Okay, listen, this is the way, this is the way I preach. Okay, listen. It's conversational. I know I got the mic, but it's still conversational. So if, I, if I, so if I say something you like, you let me know. So it's practice. I just said something you like. That's right. If I say something you don't like, that's fine. Just be quiet and then email, email your pastors later, and they'll handle whatever it is that you disagree with in Jesus' name. Okay? So whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you got to see what it's therefore. So earlier in Romans, between verse 1 through verse 11, Paul lays out the claim of the gospel, and he makes it abundantly clear that you and I, apart from Jesus, are wickedly sinful and destined for the wrath of God, the wrath of God in eternity and the wrath of God now. Paul is making the claim that apart from Jesus, we are dead to the ways of God, that we do not come out of the womb looking for the ways of God. Now, in our culture today, there's a thought that says human beings are born good and they choose bad. Most of these people who say this don't have children, right? They don't have kids. But when your kids come out of the womb, I have never, I have three sons, I have never, ever in my life had one of my kids wake up in the morning and come to me and say, dearest father, it is out of the abundance of gratitude I come to you this morning. The joy of all you've given me overflows in my soul. How may I serve you today? Never had that. What I usually get is, Dad, wake up. Give me peanut butter right now. You work for me. We're born, we are born looking out for number one, are we not? And so we are not looking over the ways of God. And so the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is not that God came to make bad people good. God came to make dead people alive alive to the ways of God, alive to the things of God, alive to the person of God. So Paul, for the first 11 chapters, lays out, we are destined for the wrath of God, but God has rescued us. He has rescued us, not by anything you have done, but by what has been done in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is not that God loves you where you are. 
The good news of the gospel is that God loves you where you are, and he loves you not to leave you the way he found you, to actually change you. And that's what the rest of Romans is. Paul is saying, because you have met Jesus, you can't be the same anymore. In, in other words, there is an ethical implication to your Christian life. The Christian life is both an ethos and an ethic. The ethos is the love of God now in you, that you are loved by God. The ethic of that is, how should I live different now? How should I now change? And that's what Romans 12 through 16 is. Paul is laying out, this is how you must live. So he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you have notes or you, you have an iPhone, you can take out. If you have an iPhone, there's a cool little thing where you can, like, take notes. So you guys know what this is? So I have, some, I have some notes for you this morning. If you want to write it down in a journal or your iPhone, if you have an Android, I have nothing for you. Nothing at all. Nothing. Just, <laughs> just I'm just going to pray for you after. I'm going to lay hands and I'm pray for you. Okay, but write this down. The title of my, my message this morning is The Change is Necessary. The Change is Necessary. There seems to be a lie that has infiltrated the church today, and even in the days of Paul, that has somehow convinced people that the gospel is something to believe with no ethical implication. So even the demons, the Bible says, believe in Jesus. But we have to be clear that salvation is not the goal. So raising kids, birth is not the goal. But to raise your children. So in the same way, salvation, coming to Jesus, is not the goal. It's the beginning. But who we are becoming in Jesus is what matters, which means what we believe and confess about the Lord Jesus must be actively obeyed and put into practice in our lives. So Paul wants to make this clear. He wants to make clear that right theology has to lead to right practice, which means the aim of the Christian life is not to get saved. But the aim of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus. In your finances, in your dating, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, in your career, in what you think, in what you say, in what you watch, in how you live, the aim is to become more like Jesus. The change is necessary. How do we know this? The central imperative of this text is the word be transformed. Now, the Bible is divided into two categories. Is divided into what is known as the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is simply that which is true. God loves you. That's the indicative. It's true. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you, you, whether you want to believe it or not, it's true. The indicative is what's true. The imperative is what you and I must do or live out in light of what's true. So if God loves you, that's what's true. The imperative is be transformed. Everything else in Romans 12, if I had time, we would unpack all of Romans 12, comes out of be transformed. In other words, Paul is saying, be different, live different, be changed, or another word for this could be mature, grow. Now, every one of us wants to mature in some way. Any one of us with kids wants our children to mature. I have three boys. We have three boys right now, and we have another child on the way. We want all four to mature. 
So our 10-year-old our and our 6-year-old and our 4-year-old, we're teaching how to do certain things. I'm teaching my 6-year-old how to take a shower, like how to stand under the water, how to use soap. And why am I teaching him that? Because when he's 35, I don't want to be giving him a bath. I want him to mature and grow. We have a child in, in utero right now. We want that child to grow and to develop and to have all the, the right body parts working and the blood working and the muscles working. We want them to grow, yeah. right? Which is, and, and we want our family to grow, which is funny because when I told our three boys are nuts. I mean, they, they are absolutely nuts. And so I told my parents, this is like a couple years ago, like, I think we're going to try for number four. And my mom's first words were like, no, Nidop, it is very irresponsible. <laughs> no more children. Poor Hannah, no more. But then when we told them we're expecting number four, you know, actually, actually and, and my dad even said, like, no, no, Nidop, it is very irresponsible. You know, don't, don't do it. And I was like, well, dad, the, the Bible says, you know, blessed is the man with, with many children who fills his quiver. My dad, true story, looks at me and goes, Nidop, that is for the Jews. Like, true story, he told me that. <laughs> True story. Now they're all excited that we're having a fourth kid. But we want our children to mature. We want them to grow. Amen? Amen. We want our families to grow. We want our church to grow. We want our businesses to grow. So growth is really natural. And it seems that many people come to know Jesus and they just don't grow. They sort of just kind of stay where they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago or a week ago. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, change is necessary. Why is this? Two reasons. Number one, who you are becoming trumps who you are. Who you are becoming trumps who you are. Whenever I do weddings, I do a ton of weddings. Our church has a, predominantly a bunch of young people who are either, either about to date or they're, they're getting engaged, and so I, I end up doing a whole lot of weddings. And, and when I was getting married, the, the, the sort of in thing was you just let the pastor do the vows, and then you just, just said what the pastor said. So any, any married people in the house, you just like... The pastor just said the vows. Okay, we, now it's all about writing your own vows. Like, everybody wants to write their own vows. It's like, it's really cool. And I did a wedding the other day, 20 minutes, literally 20 minutes of vows. I went home, I did my taxes, took a nap, and I came back. They were still in their vows. And you listen to their vows. And so I, I like, try to stand back away from the couple when they're doing their vows. I don't want to be immortalized in their photo that hangs over their bed. And so I try to get away. And, and, I, try, and, I, and, I, and I unmute my microphone because I try really hard not to laugh or giggle at their vows. Because they, make up, they, they say these things that they really mean, but they have no idea what's coming. Like they have no idea, you know? And one of my favorite vows that I've heard lately, and, I, and I've heard it multiple times, so I don't know if this is, this is like a Pinterest thing or they saw it, on a, they saw it on, a, on a T-shirt at a Christian bookstore, but everyone's saying this thing now, and they're saying, I promise I will never try to change you. And so any married couples in the house, you know how ridiculous that statement is, right? Because by the time you get to the reception dinner, you already trying to change your spouse, right? Like, I will I promise never to change you. And I'm looking at them like, you have no idea what's about to come. You know, so my wife and I get married. Everything's perfect. It's amazing. I come home the first night. My wife tried to make me dinner. God bless her soul. She makes dinner, and I take one bite of this lasagna, and it's meatless lasagna. And I looked at her in the face, and I just said, boo, give us Barabbas. Yes. <laughs> 
We're always trying to change people. We're, always, we're trying to change our kids. We're trying to change our employees. We're trying to change our boss. We're trying to change our spouse. We're trying to change our in-laws. We're trying to change everything because you know why? Change is necessary. When I grew up, when I was in high school, we had these things called yearbooks. I don't know if they have yearbooks anymore, but back then they had yearbooks. They had actual photos, like, like actual print in the book. And then you would, at the end of, at end of the year, you'd go around like, hey, can you sign my yearbook? Can you sign my yearbook? And inevitably, someone would write something in your yearbook, and they would say something like, don't ever change. Anyone have that in the yearbook? Don't ever change. Now, let's be honest. I went to high school 20 years ago. I look at those photos, and I think, man, you definitely got to change. Let's just start with basic fashion. Like, fashion has to change. When I was in high school, what was in fashion was oversized everything. So I'm, I'm wearing, like, a 38 jean. Like, my, my whole family could fit in 38 jeans. Yeah. And, and you're wearing those belts where they had no loops on it, but they were, like, kind of weaved together. Anyone know what I'm talking about? You had that. You had your super tight puka shell necklace on your, on your neck, you know? And then you, I had my giant FUBU, FUBU shirt on, and I had my Tommy Hilfiger jeans with, with, with the little slot for the hammer. I don't even own a hammer, but you got a slot for a hammer. So, I mean, just, I mean, fashion's got to change. But then you look at your life and like, man, I, I hope that I don't have the same character I did when I was 18. I hope that my mental capacity has grown. I hope that my relational capacity has grown. Change is actually necessary. So Paul is saying the aim of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus, which means you and I got to change. We have to live different. Not for God to love us, but in light of the reality that we are already loved by God. Secondly, why is this? Or what's important about this? Is that change must be pursued. You actually have to not only want to change, you actually have to pursue change. Now, here's what's important about this particular imperative. The imperative is be transformed. It's not an active imperative. It's actually a passive imperative, which means while you pursue that change, that change is not up to you. You don't actually control whether or not you change, but you are opening yourself up to God for God to do the change in you, which means that we have to let go of control. Every one of us in some way, shape, or form is a control freak. We want to control the things that happen in our lives. And I think if 2020 has taught us anything, it's taught us that we have no control whatsoever over anything. And so God is saying, if you want to become more like Jesus, then you have to let God do his work in you. And it's a passive imperative because what Paul is saying is that change doesn't come when you do more, but change comes when you spend more time with Jesus. Have you noticed the more time you spend with someone the more you become like them. My mom would tell me these things growing up that didn't make any sense. You know, parents give you advice, and you think, like, that makes no sense. Like, one of the things my mom would always say is, like, nothing good happens after midnight. And you're like, Mom, a lot of stuff good happens after midnight. And then you're 30, and you're like, Mom was right. Nothing actually good happens. I mean, mean, really, after 9.30, nothing really good happens, you know? And then the other thing my, my mom and dad would say is, like, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. You become like the people you spend time with. So if you spend time with those who are far from God, you will inevitably become like someone who is far from God. But if you spend time with those who are near to God, you become like those who are near to God. To a greater extent, if you spend time with Jesus, then guess who we become like? Like Jesus. We become like him. 
And the aim of the Christian life is not to do what Jesus did. When I was in high school, we had these things called WWJD. These little bracelets. My best friend, Steve, we went to Claire's together, and he stole one. He stole a WWJD bracelet. It's like, Steve, I, I don't know if that's what Jesus would do. I just don't know if Jesus would steal a bracelet that says WWJD. The Christian life is not to live as if, what would Jesus do? But rather, how did Jesus become who he is? How do we become, with your personality, with your credit score, with, with your parents, with your family of origin, with your suffering, with your sorrow, with your pain, with your ambitions, with your dream, with your children, with where you're from, how would that Jesus live if he were you? In fact, Dallas Willard, the great philosopher, said that discipleship is simply answering the question, how would Jesus live if he were me? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, become like Jesus. The gospel is, yes, God meets you where you are. Yes, God invites you as you are. But no, the gospel does not keep you where you are. It is necessary that as followers of Jesus, our lives are marked by a new way of living. And one of the reasons that Christianity, the way of Jesus, and Christians are not taken seriously, especially in the American West, is because what we say we believe and the way we live is incongruent. It doesn't seem to make sense. And so what the world needs now is not simply Christians professing to be Christians, but Christians living as if they believe what they believe is true. Act differently. Live differently. If we are to reclaim ourselves in culture as the people who have the answers to all of life's questions... If we are to become like the early Christians in Rome who lived as revolutionaries, it won't be because we have the loudest voices. It'll be because our life reflects the beauty of Jesus. Your vision statement as a church is, in fact, the kingdom of God. For someone to see the beauty of Jesus, they are seeing the visible, tangible presence of the kingdom of God. In fact, 1 John, the apostle John says that no one can see Jesus anymore. The people who saw Jesus, they're all gone. Jesus physically has ascended into heaven. But the evidence of Jesus is in the lives of people who live today. Jesus must live in you, but live through you. So people experience the beauty and the love of Jesus, which means that we have to be transformed. Now notice, he doesn't say, therefore, try harder. Therefore, work more. Therefore, be better. He says, by the mercies of God. He says, in view of the mercies of God, be transformed. Which means the transformation in your life doesn't begin with what you do, rather with what Jesus has done for you. So he reminds you, he says, hey, look at the mercy of God. The mercy of God is simply Jesus on the cross. And Jesus on the cross is the demonstration of God's love for you. The Bible says that God doesn't just say he loves you, that while we were sinners, God demonstrated his love for you. So he says, hey, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus has done for you while we were rebelling and pushing God away. When we were saying, no, I want my way. I want to do dating my way. I want to do parenting my way. I want to do money my way. I want to do investment my way. I, I, I want to I do life my way. When we are pushing against God, God demonstrates his love for you. And he goes on the cross, and he exchanges 
all of his purity for all of our malady. And the Bible, or, or Martin Luther talks about this as the great exchange. Jesus exchanges himself for you and I. And we become now, the Bible says, the righteousness of God. Which means, followers of Jesus, when, when God looks at you, right now, when God looks at you, he does not see your past, he does not see all your mistakes, he doesn't have all them lined up. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. For those of you who don't know Jesus, the promise of the gospel is that if you would turn to Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus dressed in the righteousness and the beauty and the power. You are spotless and pure and blameless and holy before God. This is the promise of the gospel. So Paul says, be transformed not by your own effort, but by remembering, remembering the cross, which means there's two profound truths. When you look at the cross of Jesus, why, do, why does Paul, if you read the scriptures, repeatedly say, I don't want to know anything except the cross and Jesus crucified? Why is this? Why do we look at the cross daily? Because it reminds us of two things. It reminds us first that you belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. In our culture today, every industry is looking for brand ambassadors, are they not? They're looking for people to represent them. Have you ever wondered why the Apple logo is upside down on your computer? You know it's an Apple. You already know it is. Because when you flip it up, now it's right side up so everyone else knows. So you might think, oh, I have an Apple. But I wonder if that Apple has you. Like, oh, I have money, but does money have you? In, in our city, there, there's a little football team called the Denver Broncos. And life is oriented around kickoff. When does that kickoff happen? And they say, oh, oh I, have a, I have the Broncos. Like, or do they have you? See, everything in culture is getting you to belong to that particular thing, whether it's a product, it's an ideology, it's a philosophy, it's a brand. They want you to belong to it. In fact, over the Super Bowl this past year, there was a commercial. It was a Taco Bell commercial. And this taco kept following this guy wherever he went. And he goes to his basement, and there's the taco. And he yells at the taco, and he says, you don't consume me, I consume you. That's really what culture is today. Culture wants you to belong to culture. And in Romans 1, Paul is reminding you that you belong to Jesus. Listen, your money belongs to Jesus. Your marriage belongs to Jesus. Your children belong to Jesus. Your finances, your dreams, your retirement, your singleness belongs to Jesus. Your sexuality belongs to Jesus. The cross is reminding you that my life is not my own. I have been bought and paid for. My life, is, as one of my pastors would say, is under new management. Jesus owns my life. Your life belongs to Jesus. But if your life belongs to Jesus, the second truth is you can become like him. You become like Jesus. My, my, son, my wife called me a few months ago. Last year she called me. And she says, when you get home, your son, you and your son need to have a conversation because he swore in class today. And I'm like, how come he's always my son when something goes wrong in school today? So I come home and I was like, my, this is my 10-year-old. I'm like, hey, I heard you said something in class today. And I found out he did swear, but technically he spelled it. He didn't say it. He spelled the word. 
And so you're sort of like, half disappointed, half proud, he can spell. You know, like, I'm kind of proud of this. So I sit down, I'm like, okay, how do I handle this particular conversation with him? So I, so I say, hey son, I'm gonna, let, let's play a little game. I'm gonna make a series of noises and you tell me what animal makes that sound. So let's play this game. So I said, moo, moo, animal. And I said, bah, bah. And I said, cluck, cluck. And I said, well, his name is Jai. Jai, how do you know what animal made that sound? And he, or what animal that was? And he says, well, I can tell by the sound that it makes. And I'm like, that's right. In the same way, people can tell who you are by the sound that comes out of your mouth. Now, you, you tell me, son, do you want to be known as someone who speaks those words? He says, well, no, no, I don't want to. Then you have your answer of how you should speak and how you shouldn't speak. I want him to understand that who he is becoming is more important than what he does. Now, from the time that you and I are born in this country, or in any country, what is the question? What do you want to do when you're older? What do you want to do when you get to high school? What do you want to do when you get to college? What do you want to do when you get married? What do you want to do when you get your first job? What do you want to do, do, and do? What I'm here to tell you is that what, what you become or who you become is more important than what you do. As we raise our children, what's more important is who they're becoming. Who are you becoming? Who cares what you do? Are you becoming more gentle, more kind, more loving, more faithful, more joyful, more, the Bible says, goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Are we becoming more like Jesus or are we just doing Christian things? Because you can do Christian things. I could give you a list of Christian things to do, but you may never become like Jesus doing that. The aim of your life is not to do things like Jesus, but to become like Jesus. How do I speak like Jesus and love like Jesus and be patient as Jesus and speak truth in love as Jesus and live in holiness as Jesus to make disciples like Jesus? Who we are becoming matters. Who we are becoming matters. And how does this happen? Paul lays out the answer. Okay, I want to become more like Jesus. How do I become like Jesus? Well, Paul says, he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Listen, every day the devil has one tactic. And the tactic is to place lies into your, into your mind. And to, to take truth out and supplant something else in there. And the only way that we become like Jesus is to have our minds where Jesus' mind was. Because in the words of the immortal Queen Latifah, free your mind and the rest will. Am I the only one who watched BET growing up? All right. Free your mind and the rest will. The Bible says that you have in Jesus the mind of Christ. Where Jesus' mind was, was to glorify the Father was to know the will of the Father, to spend time with the Father, to be in the presence of the Father, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you live in the mind of Jesus, and how do you live in the mind of Jesus? We must know the words of Jesus. What has Jesus spoken in his word? The Bible is not just a book of things to do. It's a letter, a story of who we become. It's a love letter that says, if you would follow me, you would become like my son and live in the fullness of joy in the presence of power. You can overcome all things because Christ has overcome all things. You can be more than a conqueror through Christ who is more than a conqueror. You don't have to subject yourself to feelings anymore. You can live in the fullness knowing that you are holy and blameless. And listen to me. Every day there are two voices 
one voice telling you everything you've done wrong, that you'll never belong. Live in the shame, live in the guilt, live in the abuse, live in your own strength. And there's another voice that is constantly calling you to the mercy of the cross. And the voice you believe will determine who you become. If you believe the voice that says, no, 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 do it your own way. God, God won't come through on this one for you. You got to do this in your own strength. God's already left you. Or if you believe the voice that says, come to me, all who are weary. The voice that says, I look up to the hills, where does my help come from? The voice that says, you are loved, you are beloved, you are mine. Come to me. The voice you believe, church, will determine who you become. And my prayer for you is that you would become all that Jesus wants you to be. Let me end with this quote, and then we'll pray together. A.W. Tozer once said, I came to the realization that chances are, if Jesus doesn't have all of me, he doesn't have any of me. And so my question for you today as we end our time together, is there a place in your life that Jesus does not have all of you? Even one place where he doesn't have all of you, what is that place? Would you give that to him today? Would you surrender to him today, that one place, whatever that might be? Would you just close your eyes and pray with me in a moment? I'm going to ask you to respond just with, I'm going to ask a series of questions, and if that's you, I just want to pray for you. If you just put your hand up, if that's you. If there's a place in your life, whether it's your singleness, your dating, your marriage, your dreams, your pain, your ambition, your children, your parents, your career, your loss, whatever it might be, if there's one place in your life where you know, Jesus, I'm still holding on to this, but I want this place in my life to become more like you. If you were me, how would you live out this one place in your life? Would you just put your hand up? You have to, I just want to just pray over you. Lord, I pray for every single person that has their hand up, that right now, Lord, in that place, Lord, you know what that place is. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is that Jesus, you would meet them in that place. You would touch them in that place, show them what it means to have you become. You belong in that place, that they would abide in you and you in them. Lord, take root in that place. If there's any person here today that's just been maybe just wandering for a little bit, trying to navigate life on their own, and you're saying, I, I think today, I want or I want to want to let Jesus just have his way in my life. Whatever that is, would you just put your hand up? I just want to pray for you. Lord, I pray for every hand up right now. In that place, you would meet them. Lord, you love them, you know them, you see them, and you want them to know how much you love them. Lord, let your love flow over them, your mercy pour through them, that in this moment right now, they would live in the fullness and the joy that Jesus has to offer. And all of us in this place, we surrender to you. Come on, church, we just, in front of you, just open up your hands. We surrender to you in this moment. Lord, have your way in us. Call us to belong and to become more like you, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. And together, all of God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us for the Kalos Church Podcast. Hey, if you feel comfortable, we would love to see you and meet you in person. We meet at 945 and 1130 every Sunday at the Hilton Garden Inn. 
in downtown Bellevue. If you want to join us, head to www.kalos.church. You can get all the information you need and sign up so we can make sure there's a safe place for you to come and experience the beauty of Jesus with you. We'll see you next time.